all the joys of being in a different place. All right. Well, when immigrants arrive in a new country, they're often excited to learn the culture of their new country. They want to learn how to function well in their new society, how to blend in. Uh, They want to, in many ways, be like their new countrymen. Uh, They don't want to be viewed as different. Uh, And yet, at the same time, uh, immigrants often also want to maintain a connection to their original culture. Uh, They don't want to forget who they are, where they came from. Uh, And sometimes that can produce a tension about how to live, how to raise children, how to function, how to blend between these two cultures. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul speaks of Christians as people who have been transferred out of one kingdom into a new kingdom. God's children have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. But quite different from immigrating from one country to another, in our case, as followers of Jesus, the kingdom we are leaving has nothing good to offer or to remember. We're leaving the kingdom of darkness and death. And so in Colossians 3, Paul challenges his readers to completely abandon the patterns of their old kingdom. In fact, God's word tells us to put the culture of darkness to death in our hearts. We have to kill it. But the challenge is that our transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is quite different from immigrating in this way. We have spiritually transferred kingdoms, but we are still physically living in the old kingdom. We're already in the kingdom of Christ in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense, we are still living in the exact same kingdom as before. And the old kingdom that we still live in is the kingdom of darkness. And it doesn't give much credence to the values of the new kingdom that we have joined. And so we seek to put our old moral structure to death in our hearts while everyone else around us is saying, this morality you used to live in is the right one. Keep living like this. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, if you would, Colossians chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, this is page 984, page 984. Uh, If you're just trying to find it in your own Bibles, if you find the book of Romans, then you have the Corinthian letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're going to read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11 as we open today. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. God, our Father, it is good to be together with your people. What a joy to see the faces of people who love you, who serve you, and who we love because you've loved us, and because we're all part of the same family in Christ. And yet, Lord, I'm sure there are some here who do not know you, who are not yet part of your eternal family, and I pray that you would grant them an understanding of sin, to recognize the depth of their own sin and to see their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open hearts even this morning to your truth. For all of us, Lord, may we be quick to hear. May we hear your word and may we understand it. May we apply it to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives so that we would live for your honor and glory, so that we would worship you. Or as we deal with this difficult text, I ask that you would help us uh, to appreciate it and to not think of others who need it, but to think of our own hearts and how we need it and how we need to grow and change into the image of Christ. I want to pray for uh, people uh, along the Mississippi River who are in danger of floods uh, right now, that you would grant them safety, um, that you would uh, help people to recover and to rebuild quickly. Lord, we pray for your people throughout this world who are suffering. Many people whose life is at risk simply because they name the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help them to be faithful. Give them boldness. And Lord, as we see the lives of so many faithful Christians who are willing to suffer and die, may we have boldness here. May we be quick to share Jesus Christ with others. May we be quick to show people that we're sinners who desperately need a Savior. We ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 is primarily about the preeminence of Christ. All things were created in him, through him, for him. He is the fullness of God, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. He reconciled all things to God through his blood on the cross. Jesus Christ is the center of all reality. He was vindicated. He triumphed over his enemies. He humiliated his foes in his death, burial, and resurrection. And based on his sacrifice, he offers reconciliation between God and man. Not based on your heritage, not based on your parents, not based on your own good works or righteousness. In fact, God tells us none of us are righteous, not even one. Jesus reconciled people to God by his physical death on the cross. And Jesus did this to accomplish God's eternal plan of redemption, to exalt the Son of God as the conquering lion and the sacrificial lamb, as the only one who is worthy, as the one who must receive blessing and honor and glory. In Colossians 2, Paul tells the Colossians that as they have received Christ, they must walk in him. Paul's concerned that they're going to start following human philosophies that oppose Christ or teach some other kind of reconciliation besides Christ. Only Jesus Christ is able to reconcile God and man. And Jesus Christ is fully sufficient 
to reconcile God and man. For those who believe in Jesus, we were dead in sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. His life became our life. His death became our death, and his resurrection became our resurrection. So we don't do good works to be reconciled to God. Jesus has reconciled us to God. We don't set up a set of rules and regulations to be made right with God. Jesus made us right with God. We seek to honor God in our lives precisely because Jesus has accomplished redemption and reconciliation. Three weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Colossians 3, which is really the introduction to our section today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what we saw three weeks ago is that we are raised with Christ to live for Christ. We are raised with Christ to live for Christ. Everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is connected to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. So if you are in Christ by faith, you are raised with Christ. And since you are raised with Christ, then live for Christ. And that brings us to our text for today, where the Apostle Paul begins laying out some specific applications of seeking the things above and setting our minds on things above. And our main theme today is be killing sin or it will be killing you. You may have heard that before from John Owen's classic book of the mortification of sin in believers. Uh, You would do well to read that book. It's a bit challenging, but you can get a modernized version edited by Justin Taylor. It's still challenging, even modernized, but it is well worth the effort. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have two main points this morning, and the first one is this, put sin to death. Put sin to death. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let's start with this fundamental command, put to death what is earthly in you. What is it that we are to put to death? What is earthly in you? Put to death what is earthly in you. That phrase, what is earthly in you, refers to your earthly nature. Uh, Scripture often speaks of Christians as being dead to sin on the one hand, and yet Scripture is also clear that Christians still struggle with sin. Well, How can we be dead to sin on the one hand, and yet on the other hand still dealing with sin? Well, The language Paul uses here carries the idea of your earthly nature or the members of your earthly body. The idea is we still deal with a body of sinful flesh. Until we die or Christ returns, there will be an aspect of us that still desires sin, what might be called our earthly flesh. And Paul is saying, put to death that earthly flesh that still desires sin. Put to death your desire for and pursuit of sin in your life. Put sin to death. Because the reality is, if you are not killing sin, it will be killing you. If you're not putting sin to death in your life, sin will be in your life putting you to death. If you have a translation, um, you may have one that begins verse 5a, Therefore consider the members of your body, of your earthly body is dead, and then it lists out the sins. I'm guessing that translation has 
something to do with it's sort of an unusual construction of the verb, but it isn't the most helpful translation. The meaning is not to consider what has happened, but do something now, namely, put sin to death. Put sin to death in you. Whatever part of your soul desires sin, put that desire to death. Because if you have been raised with Christ, then you must live for him. Putting sin to death is demanded by our being raised with Christ, but putting sin to death is also empowered by our being raised with Christ. We put sin to death as a response to what Jesus has done and through the power of what Jesus has done. The gospel compels us and empowers us to put sin to death in our lives. Put sin to death. Now note this, this is only going to be helpful to you if you actually believe the gospel. You must have died with Christ by faith. You must have been raised with Christ by faith. This passage offers no hope to you if you are not raised with Christ in the first place. You're not capable of putting sin to death if you are not united to Christ by faith. So if you have not trusted in Christ, the point of this passage to you is that you must first trust in Jesus Christ. Don't go trying to kill sin on your own. If anyone could kill sin on their own, they wouldn't need Jesus. Jesus came because nobody could defeat sin. And you can't defeat all the sin in your life. Christian, put sin to death. This is not a matter to be taken lightly. We have to be careful about sin in our lives. Sometimes we set ourselves up for sin. Rather than fleeing from temptation, we kind of hang out right at the edge of temptation. I'm just going to sit here by temptation and hope that temptation doesn't overtake me. We need to flee from temptation. It's kind of hard to put sin to death if you feed it every day. You probably know people who are gluten intolerant, who have, on the other hand, a nut allergy. Right? For people with these conditions, that food is poison to them. They can't have any of it, not even a little bit. And they go to amazing lengths to make sure they don't consume any portion of this food that is dangerous for them. If they go to a restaurant, they ask the waiter to ensure their food is safe. If the waiter doesn't clearly know, they ask them to bring the chef out. And if the chef doesn't clearly know, they don't say, oh, well, I hope we get lucky. No, they walk out of the restaurant and go somewhere where they care about food safety. And we should be that serious about our sin. We don't open the door to temptation. We don't go near it and say, I hope it all works out. Paul doesn't actually go into detail here about how to put sin to death. He assumes once he tells us to put it to death that we'll just do it. So I'm just going to give you four aspects to putting sin to death. This is not exhaustive. It's just some thoughts. Fundamentally, we put sin to death by setting our minds on things above where Christ is. Meditate on the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, in Eastern religions, meditation is clearing your mind. In the Bible, meditation is filling your mind with God's truth. So spend time considering all the glory of Christ that is revealed in his word. Consider how Jesus came and suffered and died for sinners like you. Contemplate how Jesus bore God's wrath 
for sin. And the more you love and worship Jesus, the less you will want to sin. In the perspective of eternity, you were already raised with Christ, so live in the present as the kind of person he's making us into for eternity. Second, you have to hate your sin. You have to hate your sin. Consider the evil of your sin, the way it defies our glorious God, the way it brings shame on the name of Jesus Christ. Recognize the damage that your sin does to you and to others around you and hate your sin. Third, quit giving yourself situations of temptation. If you don't want to eat dessert, you don't get the ice cream out and set it on the counter. You don't put a batch of chocolate chip cookies in the oven. You don't stop by the donut store. Sorry about the donuts. If you want to avoid sin, stop meditating on the sin. Don't put yourself in situations where the temptation is right there in front of you, tempting you. Fourth, pursue a life that pleases God. To put off sin, you have to seek to put on righteousness. Uh, Right after these two vice lists we have in verses 5 through 11, we're told in verses 12 and following to put on righteousness. As God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, and so on. So as you seek to kill sin, pursue a life of righteousness. Pursue a life that pleases God. Christian, you must put sin to death in your life. This is not a task reserved for super saints. This is something God calls all Christians to do. This is where the church can come together and help each other, encourage each other, help one another see our blind spots, exhort one another to put sin to death in our lives. Put sin to death. That's the key point here. Put sin to death. After giving this command to put sin to death, Paul lays out a list of sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul's going to give another list of sins in verses 8 and 9, and he gives similar lists in about half of the letters he wrote in the New Testament. Scholars often refer to these as vice lists, a common list, list of vices that people are known to partake in. Uh, Paul also writes what are known as virtue lists in various places as well. Uh, we'll see one here in Colossians down in verses 12 and 13 uh, in a couple weeks. So vice and virtue lists, they were really common in Judaism. They were really common in the Greco-Roman world Paul lived in. Uh, but one thing that sti- distinguishes Paul's list from secular lists is that his lists address God's judgment against these sins. The wrath of God is coming against sins like these. And secular writers were giving a pattern of life to, to live after what they thought would bring a person joy or bring good to society. Paul is clarifying what things displease God, the things that are contrary to the nature of our perfectly holy and good God. Now, when I first planned to preach on this section, I actually thought we had a list of a few different categories of sin Uh, But after studying the passage more, I realized all five of these sins have to do with sexual sin. These sins don't always intrinsically refer to sexual sin, but in this order and grouping, Paul is highlighting all of these sins as sexual sins. Um, But even though they relate to sexual sin, they carry different ideas. 
Sexual immorality is the first vice listed. And sexual immorality is a broad term encompassing any sexual pleasure outside of marriage, any kind of sexual sin, any sexual behavior other than with a husband or wife, your own husband or wife. Uh, the second sin we see here is impurity or uncleanness. Now, impurity can refer to any kind of moral corruption, but here it's applied specifically to sexual sins. Uh, impurity confronts the reality that sexual sin is not simply a physical sin. Sexual immorality begins in the heart and in the mind. A person considers it, mentally engages in what it might be like, begins to dwell on it, and then often ultimately engages in it physically. But they have an impure heart that has been meditating on it for quite some time. The third and fourth sins are closely related, lust or passion and evil desire. Passion and lust are similar words to each other, desiring sexual pleasure other than from your husband or wife. Evil desire is our general tendency towards sin. We have desires towards things that are not of God. And Paul here connects these words in the context of sexual sin, and he does that in other places as well. In Romans 1, Paul describes both of these sins as sins God gives people over to. That is, God allows people to continue in these sins and they build on each other. Evil desire gives way to lust, which produces more evil desire, resulting in more lust. These passions and desires can come to dominate a person, overcoming reason and rational thought. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery in his heart. It isn't just a physical act that is sin. We commit sin in our hearts with the way we think. Pornography would be just one example of these kinds of sin. Pornography used to be considered a man's sin, but no longer. Pornography viewing is equal opportunity in our culture. From explicit literature to explicit photos and videos, pornography is so prevalent in our culture, it's hard to fathom the reality. It's consumed regularly by people of all age groups. But as children of God, we are to put sins like this to death in our hearts. Lust, passion, evil desire. The last sin is covetousness or greed. And in this context, the intent is sexual in nature. Coveting is wanting what belongs to someone else or placing excessive value on something that you don't have. Coveting is desiring more than what God has given you. And coveting really comes back to a desire that says other things and other people exist for my pleasure. A sexual sin is always tied back to covetousness. The person who commits sexual sin wants something more than what God has given them. And so they go and they take it. It isn't that there was necessarily something wrong with what they had. They just have chosen not to be satisfied with what God has given. And it's really easy for Christians who don't commit the big sexual sins to think of these sins as simply other people's problem. But coveting is really the one that catches most people at some point or another. You know, perhaps as a single person, wanting pleasure that only belongs in marriage. And that could be sexual pleasure. It could be other aspects of marriage that don't belong to you simply because you're single. Let me ask you, will you be satisfied, single person, with where God has you today? That this is the life God has called you to live right now. 
a husband or wife, are you wishing for more than what your spouse offers? Maybe they don't have the physical body of a Greek god or goddess. Maybe they don't show you tenderness and affection. Maybe they fight with you all the time. And you think that somebody else will provide what your current husband or current wife is failing to provide. Well, I wish my husband was more like Jim Bob. I wish my wife was like Ethel. Will you trust God that God has given you exactly the person that you need, exactly who he wants you to have? And not just will you grudgingly accept it like, okay, fine, I'm stuck, but will you actively remind yourself of how God has blessed you with your specific husband, with your specific wife? The sin, sin isn't out there. The sin is here in our hearts. We see at the very end of verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. At its heart, coveting gives glory to something or someone that belongs only to God. It's subtle. We wouldn't necessarily even realize what we're doing, but we want the thing that does not belong to us more than we want to honor God. We desire pleasure in what we covet more than we desire pleasure in honoring God, more than we believe we'll find pleasure in obeying God. God promises us pleasure in obedience to him, but we don't believe him. We believe we'll find pleasure in something he hasn't given to us. And so we turn to that thing or that person. In our hearts, our passions are as enthroned as king rather than God. In our hearts, our passions are enthroned as king rather than God. Now, Paul warned against sexual sin in at least eight of his 13 letters. Jesus condemned sexual sin. The author of Hebrews warns against sexual sin. The book of Revelation addresses sexual sin. Countless Old Testament passages speak about sexual sin. I think it's safe to say that sexual sin is a universal reality. This is a sin that crosses all divides. Every era of history has dealt with sexual sin. Every culture deals with this sin. Every race deals with this sin. Every gender deals with this sin. Both genders, just to clarify. And sexual sin is rampant in our world today, just like it was rampant in the biblical era. If you look at adultery statistics, if you look at pornography statistics, if you look at sexual activity statistics, from any way you could possibly measure sexual immorality, it is practiced and even celebrated in our world today. And the age at which people are first exposed to sexual immorality keeps getting younger and younger. And parents, you have responsibility at an age-appropriate level to teach your children a biblical view of sexuality as a gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage. You have to warn your children about the dangers of distorting God's gift of sexuality. As you know, this is not just a problem outside the church. It is a problem inside the church. That's obviously true in Paul wrote Colossians, or he wouldn't have focused on it. Uh, How did we get here? How did sexual sin come to be such a common problem? Why do we struggle with sexual sin? To understand that, we really have to understand where sexuality came from and where sin came from. And to do that, I want us to go to the book of Genesis. Turn to page 1 in your Bible. Genesis is the very first book of your Bible. We are in the very first chapter. 
verse 27, which probably in your Bible is on the very first page of Genesis. Genesis 1, 27. <clears throat> God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God made us in his own image, male and female. There's something in our very gender that God's word connects with being made in the image of God. In Genesis 2, we have a more detailed record of God creating mankind. Genesis 2, 7, we see that the Lord God created Adam, the first man. And then down in chapter 2, verse 18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Of course, you probably know none of the, none of the animals were fit helpers for Adam. So we read in verse 21, the Lord, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created gender, biological sex. Your gender is God's idea, God's plan. God created our biology. God created our sexuality. God created woman for man and man for woman, and God created marriage. And verse 24 provides divine commentary on these things. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So this is God's design. A man leaves his father and mother. That is, he's no longer bound in the same way by his relationship to his parents. And he holds fast to his wife. There is a marital union. And the two become one flesh. Becoming one flesh is talking about more than sexual union, but not less. God created marriage. God created sexual experience. And God made the sexual relationship to be a joyful experience. You can read the Song of Solomon. So God created sexual experience for good in marriage, but something went wrong along the way. And of course, what went wrong is Genesis 3. Man rejected God's design. Man decided he should be God instead of God, and man fell into sin and spiritual death. In Genesis 2, we just read Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3, verse 7, Adam and Eve realize they're naked and they cover themselves. Their sinful state has immediately resulted in shame and a need for covering. Verse 8, they hide from God. In the following verses, God questions Adam and he blames Eve. God questions Eve, she blames the serpent. Their relationship has experienced brokenness. So as a result of our fall into sin, every good gift God has given us we distort and twist into something evil. Rather than seeking to please God with his good gifts, we distort them in evil ways. We take God's good design and use it in ways he has condemned. God's design is that a sexual relationship is to be enjoyed only in marriage between a husband and a wife, one man and one woman. But rather than the sexual relationship being a demonstration of love towards a husband or wife, it is used in other ways, with other people. And every distortion of God's design in the sexual relationship is sin. 
All these sins Paul has listed out are ways that we as humans reject God's design to pursue something else instead. Fundamentally, sexual sin is a rejection of God as God. It is idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And we as Christians, as God people, we have an opportunity to speak to the world on this issue. The world has absolutely no standard and no clue about a morality of sexuality. And as people are taught sinful perspectives about sexuality and engage in illicit sexual practices, they create a lot of brokenness. But the gospel offers hope to broken people. The gospel offers hope by first identifying the consequences of sin and then by revealing the glory of the gospel, the glory that God would save sinners. That brings us to our second main point. God's wrath comes against these sins we once walked in. God's wrath comes against these sins we once walked in. We'll look at that in halves. First, God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's a textual variant at the end of verse 5. Many early manuscripts include the phrase, on the sons of disobedience. Some manuscripts exclude the phrase. Uh, The statement's certainly true. God's wrath is coming on those who oppose him, not on those who have trusted Christ. Uh, but that phrase with, about the sons of disobedience, it, there's a close parallel with Ephesians 5. And since some manuscripts exclude the phrase in Colossians, many scholars view it as a later addition that someone did to make it parallel to Ephesians 5. Well, God's wrath is obviously an unpopular theme in our day. God's love is great. Everybody wants to talk about God's love. God's wrath is something that people want to ignore or set aside, diminish, as some relic of an older generation. But God has made clear to us in his word, he absolutely hates sin. And one day, God will pour out his wrath against sin. God's wrath is tied to God's holiness and goodness. God's wrath is a personal response to man's rejection of his character and will. And God's wrath is a demonstration that he loves what is right and good, and he hates What is evil? God's wrath is proof that he is good. One day, God will judge all sin and evil. But even today, sometimes God demonstrates his wrath by allowing people to continue in their sin. That's the pattern Romans 1 talks about. God leaves people in their sin, and they spiral further and further into darkness. That's a pattern we see in our world played out in the area of sexual sin. People who fall deeper and deeper into darker and darker sins, things you could hardly even imagine and don't want to. God's wrath is against sin, but God is also gracious and God is slow to anger. But one day, God's wrath will overflow into judgment against his enemies. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took God's wrath in himself for everyone who trusts in him. Jesus Christ is the only person who never committed sin of any kind, including sins like these. He never looked at a woman lustfully. He never wished for more than God gave him in singleness. Which, by the way, I would just like to point out briefly, there's nothing wrong with singleness. No one was ever 
more human than what humanity is supposed to be than Jesus. Jesus is the true representative of humanity. He is the true image of God. So as much as we married people love marriage or always try to encourage single people to get married, marriage will not make you more complete. Marriage will not fulfill you. Jesus lived a life of singleness in absolute satisfaction in God, and you can too. And people often think sexual sin, at least in the mind, is inevitable, but it is not inevitable or unavoidable. Jesus never sinned in this way or in any other, which is why he's qualified to be this perfect sacrifice in your place. Jesus had no sin, so on the cross he took your sin in your place. Jesus paid the price for the worst sin you've ever committed, whether it be sexual sin or some other sin. Jesus paid the price for all the sin of all his people in full. If you're in Christ, God doesn't look at you and see your sin. He looks at you and sees the perfect righteousness of his son. If you are today living in sexual sin, one thing you have to ask yourself is, why would you live in the patterns of sin that bring the wrath of God? Do you really believe in Jesus? Because our life demonstrates what kingdom we belong to. As the old farmer said, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. What is in the well of your heart? Is sin the realm that you live in? And if it is, do you really know God? Have you considered that God's wrath is coming against sins like these? I hope you're back in Colossians because I want you to turn a few pages to the left. But if you're on page one, that's not going to get you anywhere. So Colossians, no, Ephesians chapter 5. This is the parallel passage I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who live in sexual sin will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Those who live in sexual sin are bringing on the wrath of God. Are you destined to receive God's wrath? Your sin may be an indication that you have never acknowledged Jesus as Lord in the first place. And on the other hand, if you are in Christ by faith, but sexual sin defines you, it is time to put this sin to death. Today. Not tomorrow, not next week. Today. Put sin to death. Turn back to Colossians 3. I presume this was prior to his salvation, but Augustine admitted he had previously prayed, give me chastity, but not yet. We often aren't really ready to give up our sin because we don't really believe God's wrath could come for us. Imagine for a second that you had a venomous snake loose in your bedroom. 
you wouldn't wait till next week to deal with it. You wouldn't ignore it and ignore it. You wouldn't let it go hide and just assume that you can sleep in peace. You wouldn't throw a Nerf ball at it and assume you'd probably killed it. What would you do? You would kill the snake. Or you would call someone else who could kill the snake for you. You wouldn't rest until the snake was dealt with. Your sin is more dangerous to you than a venomous snake. That snake can only kill your body, but your sin can destroy your soul. We need to treat sin like we would treat the snake. We kill it, and if it starts moving again, we kill it again, and we don't stop till it's dead. Don't stop killing sin till you know it's dead. Christ is Lord of all. And if you are raised with Christ, then live for him. Put the sin of sexual immorality to death. God's wrath is coming because of sins like these. Unless any of us think, well, these are just sins for others, God's word makes it clear These were our sins too, back in Colossians 3. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Prior to salvation, we all lived in the sphere of sin, operating in the realm of sin, functioning in the arena of sin, sins like these. But now that we are raised with Christ, we are to live for Christ. And we must put sin to death. Turn back about 30 pages or so to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 955. If you're using the church Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. We're almost done here. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the unrighteous, all people who have not been connected to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, will not inherit God's kingdom but will inherit his wrath. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of the sexually immoral, none who practice homosexuality, no thieves, no greedy, no drunkards, no revilers, no swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you think you're not on that list, don't get all high and mighty. Uh, You could come up with your own list of sins that would put you here. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. If this has never been your sin in any way, praise God for that. But you do know in your own heart many other ways that you sin against God. You could make your own list. We all deserve to be excluded from God's kingdom. But God's word doesn't stop there, does it? And thus were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These sins can be forgiven. You can be washed clean. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. Everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven. And if you're already in Christ by faith, 
These things are already true of you. Forgiven, washed clean, justified, sanctified. And so you do not need to wallow in your sin. You need to rejoice in the glory of a Savior who suffered and died in your place. Worship the Son of God who conquered death by rising from the dead, who is now seated at the right hand of God. If you walked in these sins, look to Jesus Christ. And if you're still walking in these sins, look to Jesus Christ and put these sins to death. If you are raised with Christ, put to death what is earthly in you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Let's pray. God, our Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ, who is worthy, who never sinned in any way, who in every moment always did what represented you perfectly. Lord, we praise you that in all the ways we sin, Jesus is there in perfect righteousness, standing in our place. Lord, may we worship you. May we live for you. Help us to put sin to death in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.